the great controversy, we are at war. Beloved, how important is it to understand the strategy of your enemy when you're at war? Do you suppose that when, when uh, the, the great men and the captains of this world are, are around their war council tables and they're talking about their strategies, that they take time to consider the possibilities of the movements of even their enemies? Absolutely. Do you know that a man who goes to war without any understanding of what it is his enemy is seeking to accomplish might as well be fighting ghosts? He might as well be fighting what does not exist because, beloved, if we're at war then that means there's somebody in this world who has made strategic effort to destroy you and I. Now, I'm not going to be uh, mysterious with you this evening. I'll tell you very, very uh, upfront and straightforward from right now. The enemy of our warfare, beloved, is not flesh and blood. I'm not talking about men this evening, beloved. Do you know that that's not what we fight? Often it is easy as Christians to war against one another because we fail, we fail to recognize the objective of the war in which we find ourselves. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, beloved, against the spiritual rulers of wickedness in high places in this world. The enemy tonight is the devil. Amen? And the unpopular enemy tonight is this thing we call self. Beloved, have you ever heard of a man by the name of Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great of Macedon was a great king for Greece, wasn't he? The man conquered the world. The man didn't even reach his 40s. You understand that, right? Historically, when you study it. The man hadn't even reached the age of 40, and the then-known world bowed at the feet of Alexander the Great. Was that a man who understood how to war intelligently? Absolutely. Do you know that historically, when you study the end of Alexander the Great, how he died, there's not a general that you can point to that defeated him. Alexander defeated himself in the end. Because Alexander the Great, you'll read it, history will tell you, Alexander the Great failed to be temperate in all things. While he was wise in overcoming the enemies on the outside, Alexander had a problem on the inside that though he could conquer every nation in the world, the most important battle and the most important victory to be gained in his life was lost. That is the battle, not against the devil alone, but against self. Do we want to win the battle against self this evening? I told you I'm not going to be mysterious. Looking to Calvary, we know that the war is already won. Amen? And every day, by the grace of God, there are battles that must be won. The war is already won. Say that with me. The war and every day there are battles to be won. The victory that we have in Christ at the cross is to be made manifest in our lives day by day and step by step. We know as Christians that in Jesus we are victorious. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Amen? What is the condition of your faith this afternoon. What is the condition of your faith? We are at war, beloved. I want us to turn back in our Bibles to that most familiar text 
Uh, Pastor Rob was reading it just earlier in the book of Revelation in chapter 12. That's where we will start this evening, Revelation chapter 12. In the book of Revelation chapter 12, the Bible tells us something very significant. Uh, When you're with me in verse 7, say amen. The Bible says, and I'll be reading from the King James Version. Uh, Before I read, beloved, please, we're family in here, amen? Amen? If I, uh, 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 a very lovely sister was talking to me just recently, and she told me, she said, Brother Paul, I'm following what you're saying, and I'm loving it. Praise God. The Word of God is so clear. But there are some times when Brother Paul will talk like this, and when I ask you a question, I tend to do this. Isn't that right? My, vo- my volume tends to go low. Beloved, if I ask anything, if I say anything that we cannot hear, just raise a hand and say mercy by the grace of God, all right? We want to walk with Jesus this morning. I want to make sure that everybody is getting to hear what the Word of God has to say. And if it's a volume problem, then by the grace of God, we're going to give a loud cry. Amen? Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, that is where we find ourselves in our Bibles. The Bible says, And there was war in heaven. Think about that, beloved. There was war in heaven. The Bible says Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was what? Cast out that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Who is the dragon according to Revelation chapter 12? Satan. It is the devil. Amen? I have a very close co-worker back home. Uh, his name is David. And I remember one time we were talking about the Bible and he had asked me the question about Genesis chapter 3. He said, Paul, I see in the Bible that the Bible speaks about this serpent that deceived Eve and led us all into sin. But where did you as Christians get the thought that that serpent was the devil? Did you know that there are many people who read that text and they don't realize from the Bible, as you've now seen in Revelation chapter 12, that we have biblical foundation as to why we say the serpent was the devil and Satan. I was talking with David and David says, you know, I've never seen any text in the Bible, speaking of Genesis, because that's what he was reading at the time. He said, I've never seen any text in the Bible that said the the serpent was Satan. So I can't believe that Satan was the reason why we fell. We turned in our Bible to Revelation chapter 12, and he read right there in verse 9, where it said the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, Genesis chapter 3, called the devil and Satan. Do you know that that argument was put to rest right there with the Bible? Beloved, let me tell you something. The Word of God equips us. What does it do? Equips us. We're at war. We need to have our tools. Continuing. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth. Where do we live, beloved? Pay close attention. It says, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which had accused them before our God day and night. Verse 11 is the gospel right here. The Bible says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. 
Beloved, do you know that the war in which we find ourselves is the only war that you can say you've overcome, not by your blood, but by the blood of someone else? How many people have gone to war and have bled and have died just so that you and I can sit here peacefully with our Bibles open? It's a privilege to be here this evening. Amen? But the Bible says that there is an even higher privilege. You and I are privileged to discuss this theme because someone else, beloved, had their blood shed for you and I in 31 AD, 1,990 years ago. His name is Jesus, and he is the Savior of the world. Have I been talking to you about this man? Have I? Do you know what we're going to talk about tonight? I'm just making sure that we're keeping up with the pattern. We're going to talk about this man some more. In verse 11, speaking of that lamb, it says they overcame by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Beloved, never think that the way God is leading you personally is unimportant to the salvation of souls. It's one thing to understand the slaying of the lamb, that is the gospel, amen? But do you know that there are people in this world who will never be reached until they hear your personal testimony of what that blood of that lamb has done for you and I? Somebody says, no, no, Brother Paul, I am sure that if we get the best preachers that we can find in all the world and put them together, that we could turn the world upside down. Jesus did it, 12 disciples, didn't he? Do you know that the power in what those 12 men had to say back then, and it wasn't only men, because if you study about the resurrection, you'll see that there was a woman who preached it first, amen? The power in what they said was in what Jesus had personally done for them. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. What has God done for you? The world needs to hear it. The world is interested in hearing it, and we cannot overcome until it is heard. The Bible says, and they love not their lives unto the death, therefore rejoice, ye heavens. And ye that dwell in them, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down where? Unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. The Bible says, as we've just read in Revelation chapter 12, that there was a war located where? In heaven. Think about that, beloved. Does it make sense that in a place that we call paradise, there would be such a thing as war? That's not normal, is it? We want to get to the bottom of that. What does the Bible mean by there was war in heaven? And furthermore, the fact that the war began in heaven, does that mean that it ended there? Let me tell you something, beloved. If the war began in heaven and ended in heaven, then there would be no need for a Savior to die on this earth. The Bible said that while the angels rejoiced that there was victory by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, woe be unto you and I who dwell on the earth because the devil has come here and guess what he did with the war that he started in heaven? He brought it right to our doorstep. And every day, beloved, I told you, while Calvary tells us that the war has been won, praise God, 
Every day, you and I have battles to be faced. Do you know that a war is an accumulation of battles? War is the general term, beloved, but battles are specific. I can say as a Christian that in Christ, the war is won. But then the devil says, what about that battle that you had with those intemperate habits you have, Brother Paul? What about the battle with those, those hurtful words that you use towards your wife or towards your mother or towards your brother or your husband? Christian, the war has been won. And the fact that the war has been won should give us strength, should give us faith to trust Jesus in the everyday battle. Beloved, there is not a battle that you and I come across in our daily experience that we have to lose. Calvary says that there is not just power, mm -mm. there is much more power in the blood of Christ. We are well able. I didn't come here this evening to tell you that we could have victory. I think that's too small of an idea. I came to let you know that we have much more than victory in Jesus Christ. The foe that we are contending with, whether it is the devil or whether it is self, is powerless before our living priest, Jesus Christ. It is powerless. Listen, if you went to the gym, I gave you this analogy before, I just feel like it's very practical. Because in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, the Bible said that the gospel is the power of God. If you went to the gym and found yourself with a weight that you could not move, somebody says, Brother Paul, I would exercise until I was able to move the weight. Do you know that in spiritual things we can't do that? In spiritual things we are weak, and there is a weight before us called sin. No matter how much we exercise, no matter how much we practice, no matter how much we think that we can get stronger, do you know the more we try to do it on our own, it's the, uh, the more victories are lost and the more failures are gained? The only time that we can lift up the weight of sin is when a power outside of us, is when a power greater than us is applied to the task, and that power is the power of Jesus Christ. Beloved, we're at war. And the reason why I'm telling you this is because I think that when you fight a battle and you know that you have all of the power to win, there is encouragement to fight. Some of us have lost the fight that is in us tonight. We have lost the strength to battle on. We go home to broken marriages and there's no fight in us. We go home to, to, to disrupted families. We don't want to talk to our mothers. We don't want to talk to our fathers. There are siblings who don't talk and you've been in that condition for years. No will to fight. But when we know that there is more power on our side, there is courage to battle on, beloved. Beloved, listen, I, I, I have to keep going because I'll go on a tangent here. I want you to understand that Jesus has the power that you've been lacking. Jesus has the power that you need. And more than that, he offers it this evening. We can leave with this power tonight. Now, the Bible said in Revelation chapter 12 that there was war in heaven. In verse 17, I want you to jump down. We're in uh, chapter 12 still. In verse 17, we see that Satan brought this war to this earth. But what has he been doing? The Bible says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman. That word wroth means angry. It's, it's not just upset. It's, 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 it's 
angry to the point of destruction. There's a woman in the Bible that the Bible says Satan is looking to destroy in these last days. And if Satan gets his way, this woman would never say a word about the gospel to any soul. Are we following? The Bible says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6 and verse 2, the Bible tells you that God's people are likened unto a comely and delicate woman. Whenever we're studying in Bible prophecy and a woman comes up, you can be sure that the Bible is talking about a church. Amen? Now, I say that because I see that there are many sisters in here, and I don't want you to think that the dragon is specifically coming for you. He wants us all. Isn't that so? And there's power enough in Christ to to refute his power and to overcome him. Now, on our screen, we have a picture of a battle. We have men with their guns and their bayonets. Uh, they, They have their various uniforms, their helmets. I see some explosions and flares going on in the background. When we think of war, that is typically what comes to mind, isn't it so? And the longer that time uh, goes on is the more uh, technology increases the type of warfare we have. Do you know that there were men back in the 1800s, if you spoke to them about war, they would think about this type of picture here. They would never have even imagined that we would reach a point in our Earth's history where there was such a thing as an atomic bomb, such a thing as a nuclear weapon. Do you know that men can wipe off every person on the face of the planet with just the push of a button today? And it is only by the grace of Jesus Christ that we are still here in this room. I believe that God is holding back what the Bible calls the winds of strife. I believe that God is waiting to give his people an opportunity so that we can be on the correct side and this battle, which was begun in heaven, can be decided in our generation. Beloved, a war that comes to an end, isn't that the best part? Isn't the end of a war the best part of the war? Is that the type of war that happened in heaven? Do you suppose that uh, Satan took an automatic rifle and aimed it at the Son of God? Is that what happened? Talk to me, beloved. Perhaps it was a a, a, a nuclear code that, that Satan used in heaven. Is that the type of warfare? Beloved, the Bible says in Isaiah 55, I want you to turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 55, we're going to look at verses 8 and 9. What does the Bible mean when it says that there was war in heaven? Because unless we understand how the war began, it will be impossible for you and I to play our part in the end of this war. In the book of Isaiah chapter 55, say amen when you're with me. While I'm still turning, I'll say amen when I'm with you. Isaiah chapter 55, beginning at verse 8. Amen. The Bible says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Does God think the way that sinful men do? Does God behave? the way that simple men do. So when we think about war in heaven, beloved, do you suppose that the type of war we have would be the type of war that God had in heaven? 
It has to be a different type of war. Now my question is, follow me, the, war, the word war implies struggle. Amen? Do you know that if Satan were to have a physical struggle with God, it would be impossible for that struggle to continue? How much more power does the Creator have than the creature, beloved? How much more power does God have than a created angel? Infinite, isn't that right? Think about an arm wrestle. When you have two people with uh, close to equal power, because one of us has to win, amen? Close to equal power, there's a struggle in the middle of the desk. But what happens eventually is one side has to lose because the other has much more power, isn't that right? Beloved, the fact that the Bible says that there was war in heaven, the word war implies struggle, it means that God was actually wrestling with something in heaven. Now, if God is infinite in power, we can conclude that it couldn't be just physical force. That's not what we're talking about. Satan wasn't trying to get Jesus in 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 an arm bar or anything like that. That's not what we're talking about, beloved. I want us to follow the thought. So what does it mean that there was war in heaven. The Bible said that the dragon fought and his angels fought. In the book Acts of the Apostles, page 12, I want to share a thought with you. It says, Whereunto, asked Christ, shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? Mark 4.30 Jesus could not employ the kingdoms of the world as a similitude. In society, he found how much? Nothing with which to compare it. In Jesus' day, did the Roman centurions have swords? In Jesus' day, did the Roman centurions carry spears? All right. It says, in society, he could find nothing with which to compare it. Earthly kingdoms, beloved, rule by the ascendancy of physical power. But from Christ's kingdom, every carnal weapon, every instrument of coercion or force is what? Banished. In the Review and Herald, it says this, In matters concerning the kingdom of Christ, no compulsion or forcing of conscience is permitted. No blood is to be shed. No force of arms to be employed. No prison is to be opened for the incarceration of one who does not choose the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Christ will accept only of the voluntary service of the heart, which has been sanctified through the truth. Someone says, now wait a second, Brother Paul, and I'm with you. The Bible said that there was war in heaven. So what does this mean? All right, so there were no guns in heaven. Praise God. There were no swords as we know because we made those tools. Praise God. But the Bible still says that there was war. What does this mean? Is that a good question? The Bible said that Michael and his angels fought, and the dragon and his what? Angels fought. Does anybody know what the word angel means? The word angel comes from a Greek word known as angelos or agalos, and it means a messenger. What does that word mean? 
messenger. In the original Greek context that the book of Revelation was written in, the word there in Revelation chapter 12, in that war where it says that Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, actually means Michael and his messengers fought against the dragon and his, guess what? Messengers. So there were two antagonistic messages warring in heaven. On the one side, we have who the Bible calls Michael and his angels. And on the other side, we have who the Bible calls the dragon and his angels. But both sides had a message. Both sides had a what? A message. And these two messages were at war with one another. In the same way, in these last days, the war that we are talking about deals with two antagonistic messages. One message is called the everlasting gospel. We saw in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 12, that it is carried by the first, the second, and the third angel. Amen? But then there is an antagonistic uh, message. The Apostle Paul said, I marvel that we are so removed from the gospel of Christ into another gospel. So, beloved, what I'm telling you today is that the war that began in heaven is, in fact, a war of gospels. It is a war of what? It's going to become clearer as we follow on. Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom would be preached. Why did he specify if Jesus did not know that there were others? The only reason Jesus specified his gospel was because Jesus remembered a time when a dragon in heaven had something else that he dared to call the gospel of God. Do we want to see the difference between the two Gospels? Do we want to be sure that we're on the side of Christ with the everlasting Gospel? All right. What is the objective of these opposing messages? Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. I want us to see as Christians in this generation, how is it that we are to war on the side of Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and whenever I get to this subject, speaking about the war in which we find ourselves as Christians, I always take a bit of time to make sure we understand the nature of the warfare. I believe it would be a tragedy if any of us left this room to beat a man over the head with a broomstick because Brother Paul said we're at war. Is that Bible? No, beloved. We have to understand the nature of the warfare. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 3. Say amen when you're with me. The Bible says... For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The Bible says that we don't war against the flesh, but the weapons we have, which are not carnal, are mighty through God to the pulling down of what? Strongholds. Verse 5 tells us what we should be doing. Casting down men. Is that what the Bible says? What does it say, Sister Ashley? It says, casting down imaginations. We're dealing with the mind. And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the what? Obedience of Christ. 
The Bible says that while the Christian isn't warring with other Christians, that's not what Christ called us to do. We are at war with anything that would lead us into captivity to anything but the obedience of Christ. The Christian's only desire, beloved, is to follow Jesus wheresoever he goes. Do you remember last night we talked about a special number, uh, the 20? Do you remember that? Did we speak about the 20 last night, beloved? What was the special group number? What was their number? They were the 100. There are my brethren. The 144,000. The Bible said in Revelation 14, speaking of that special group of people, they follow the Lamb wheresoever he goes. Is that the Christian position? Is it the desire of the Christian to follow Jesus with all of his heart? Is it, beloved? Every Christian, whether they call themselves Methodists, whether they call themselves Seventh-day Adventists, or Baptists, or Lutherans, whatever denomination you may belong to tonight, every Christian's true desire is to follow Jesus wheresoever he goes. Amen? That is the heart of Christianity, beloved. We believe upon the Word of God. We believe upon Jesus, who is the living Word. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, continuing on this topic of what it is that the Christian wars against, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 12, the Bible says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, beloved, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to do what? Stand. Having done all to do what? Stand. Do you know that the end of the Christian warfare is a people that stand with Jesus? Did we talk about God preparing a people to stand yesterday night? So are we seeing the connection? God is preparing a people to stand. The objective of these opposing messages in heaven was on the one hand, Michael and his angels were seeking to prepare a people to stand. Michael and his angels were seeking to bring into captivity every one of them to the obedience of Christ. Whereas the dragon... That old serpent called the devil and Satan was warring to do, guess what? The very opposite. So if Jesus is preparing a people to stand, Satan wants a people that continue to do what? What was that? Sin. I was looking for the word fall, but you interpreted it, praise the Lord, by the word of God. Satan is seeking to keep us in our sin, to leave us in the very condition with the very same dangerous things that Jesus has paid such a price to save us, not in, but guess what, from. Satan is seeking to keep a people in disobedience. Beloved, on our screen we have a timeline. And in this timeline, I've taken just a few examples from the Word of God to show us the, the, the conflict between Christ and Satan has had one theme all throughout. In Revelation chapter 12, that war that began in heaven was about obedience. Where did you get that from, Brother Paul? Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17 told us that after the dragon was cast out, he came to this earth, but he made war with them that keep 
the commandments of God. I'm going to say it again because I noticed that my voice got lower right there. You didn't say anything, beloved. The Bible says that the dragon was angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God. Satan has been at war with obedience. Amen? Now, the Bible said in the book of Genesis chapter 3 that when the serpent came to Eve, guess what the ground issue was? Obedience. God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. Stay away from that thing. Now, it's very interesting. God would give you the entire world. He would give us every tree from which to eat, every river in which to swim, every animal which we could call our pet and our friend and, and, and walk with in the cool of the day. God asked us to stay away from not 20, but guess how many things? One thing. And that very one thing that God withheld from us for our good was the very thing we decided that we wanted more than anything else. Beloved, there may be one thing in your life that Jesus is asking for even this evening, and that one thing he wants to take away, but I've told you already, whenever Jesus takes something away, he gives us something better. The issue was obedience. God said not to eat from the tree. The serpent showed up and said, God is lying. For God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof, you shall be as gods. Satan has been a liar and a murderer, beloved from the very beginning of this war. And I want us to see that his tactics have not changed. Adam and Eve were blessed by God and they had sons, didn't they? Sons and daughters, is that true? Somebody says, I don't know that. You know, if you're a Bible Christian and you believe what Genesis says about Adam and Eve, then you and I are in fact offspring of Adam and Eve. Amen. So did they have children? Talk about it, beloved. Yes, they did. The Bible speaks in the book of Genesis in chapter 4 of two sons. One was named Cain, the other was named Abel. And the issue that was found between these two sons, God had demanded the sacrifice of the lamb because the lamb pointed by faith to the coming Redeemer whose name was Jesus Christ. Abel offered the sacrifice as God commanded. That's obedience. Amen. But his brother decided to offer a sacrifice that he said God should accept instead. Now let me ask you a question. Is there anything wrong with wanting to give God a fruit basket? That's not the issue. You see that? When you read in the chapter, Genesis chapter 4, you'll see that Cain gathered the best fruits. I can imagine he picked up some grapes, Sister Ashley. I can imagine, my brother, that there were mangoes in that basket and apples and tangerines and all of these wonderful things, good things. But is that what the Lord asked him for? God asked for a lamb because the lamb pointed to Christ. When God asks us for anything, I think we need to give him what he asks, beloved, and not what we think he should esteem. Are we following the thought? But all the while, the issue was obedience. Not too long after that, in the book of Genesis chapter 6 through 8, the Bible speaks about the antediluvian world, the world before the flood, and there was an issue at that time as well. Do you know what the issue was? Obedience. And when it came down to how the people ought to be saved, God gave very simple instructions. Sister Ashley, I'm glad we serve a very simple God. The gospel is a wonderful simplifier of life's problems. Every time Jesus shows up to solve a problem for humanity, we're surprised by how simple the solution is. In the book of uh, Exodus, you'll find 
that in the desert and in the wilderness, the people were, were, were dying from sickness, and God told Moses to make a serpent and put it on a stick and lift it up. And do you know what the solution was? Look and live. What was the solution, beloved? Look and live. Is that simple? I mean, I mean, beloved, are you looking at the screen? Look and live. In the days of Noah, God said, get on the ark. Do you know that God did not tell the antediluvian world to build an ark? He only gave that to one man. What was the man's name? Noah. God told Noah and his family to build the ark. But through Noah, he told the world, get on the ark. Very simple instructions, amen? So then the issue as to why some were saved, eight people in fact, and why some were lost was because of the issue of obedience. Now, the Bible says in the book of 1 Kings chapter 18 that by the days of the prophet known as Elijah, Satan was still at war with God's church. And guess what the issue was in his day? Obedience. In the book of Daniel, chapter 6, same issue. And Daniel, a faithful man of God, said that he would rather obey the king of heaven. He would rather worship the king of heaven than worship any earthly monarch, and that got him put into a den of lions. Beloved, do we have that kind of faith this evening? The issue was obedience. In Daniel chapter 3, the same issue, Nebuchadnezzar set up an image, and we're going to be talking about that image later on this week. Uh, I was sitting at home, and I was putting the slides, and I'm looking at the slides, and I'm just reviewing this thing, and, 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 and you know, I, I'm sitting here, and I'm saying, Lord, this thing right here, is so amazing. I don't understand how God is able to take a few verses in our Bible and break down so many years of history when it takes our historians so many volumes to do the same. Beloved, we serve an awesome and incredible God. The issue was obedience. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, beloved, what was the issue then? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. I want you to see something very special because it's a, it's a pin in a sure place that is going to set us up for studies to come. Matthew chapter 4, we want to take a look at the blessed Jesus and see just how Satan brought the war to our Savior. Now, I believe in the wilderness of temptation, Jesus had an overwhelming victory that we may claim, amen? We have to understand how he did it. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Are we there? The Bible says, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted for forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter, that is Satan, came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made into bread. But Jesus answered and said, it is written that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Did the enemy stop there? No. Did Jesus have the victory there? How did he get it, beloved? Three words. It is written. Do you know that the time that we spend in the Bible is what equips us? The time that we spend with the living word Christ himself is what equips us for the everyday battles that we go through. 
When we find ourselves victorious, we can't wonder at how it was if it was... Excuse me, Lord, let me grab this water. If it was good enough for Jesus, then it is good enough for guess who? You and I. Do we want to fight the war with the enemy in any way that's different from how Christ did it? Can we win in any way other than how Christ won? Think about it. Satan shows up to tempt Jesus, and Jesus' first words are, It is written. Do you know that those three words imply that Jesus took time to study my sister? How did Jesus know what was written from Genesis to Malachi? How did he know what was written in his Father's word? It is because he took the time. He did what? He took the time to study. Following this uh, temptation, in the book of verse 5, the Bible says, Then the devil took Christ up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. And he said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written. Beloved, do we know that Satan knows what the Bible says? I did not say that Satan interprets the Bible correctly. That's not what I said. I said that Satan knows what the Bible says. We have to be sure that when we are studying, we are studying based upon the Word of God because even the devil, beloved, can quote Scripture. I've told you multiple times not to believe what I say just because I say it. Hear what I say. Consider it. But always take it back where? To your Bible. Is that good advice? I pray that we heed it, beloved. Continuing in the text. He said, It is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. But again, beloved, the devil took him up into an exceedingly high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said unto him, All these things will I give you, if you will fall down and do what? Worship me. What did Satan expect Jesus to do? Worship him. Now I want you to follow this thought. It's very important. Don't miss it. In every other one of the temptations, Jesus heard what the devil said, and he responds, it is written. But in this particular instance, I want you to catch what Jesus says. The devil says, bow down and worship me. What did he want? Worship. And Jesus says, then saith Jesus unto him, get thee hence Satan. Wait a second, beloved. What was it about this particular temptation that allowed Jesus to identify the tempter as Satan himself? When Satan came to Jesus and said, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread, Jesus didn't say, get thee behind me, Satan, did he? When Satan came to Jesus and he said, throw yourself from this place because the angels of God will uphold you and will keep you from dashing your foot against a stone, Jesus didn't say, get thee behind me, Satan. He said, it is written. But the very moment 
that Satan demonstrated that desire for worship. Jesus recognized exactly who he was dealing with. Are we following the point? Did my voice go lower? The very moment that Jesus recognized a desire for worship in Satan, Jesus says, Ha! Now I know who I'm dealing with. Get thee behind me, Satan, beloved from the beginning of the war in heaven. Continuing even today on the war on earth, I have shown you from the word of God that the issue has always been obedience, but there is one specific thing that Satan has desired from the very beginning, and if we would recognize it as Jesus did, we would be able to successfully win the battle in our generation. That thing that Satan wants more than anything else, it's not just your tithe money, I'm going to be honest with you, it's not just your health. It's not just the lives of your sons and your daughters. It's not just the ruin of your marriages. What Satan wants, what identified him before Jesus, was the desire for worship. Satan wants our worship, beloved. Is he worthy of it? Absolutely not. Think about it, beloved. Whatever sin it is that you're struggling with right now, one of my best friends asked me this before, and, and I remember when he asked me the question, I said, Lord, I've never even thought about it this way. What has Satan done that has made you and I so loyal to him? Think about it, beloved. There are things that are in our lives today that Jesus faithfully and patiently and lovingly has been seeking to take away from us for years. But we cling to the very things that we say the Savior saved us from all the while in our sinful condition. What has Satan done to make you and I so loyal to him? Beloved, Jesus paid everything if there is anyone in this universe that I can declare tonight deserves my worship, it is none but the man Christ Jesus. It is none but he that can call the sun out of darkness. He that can take dust and form a man. Beloved, let me tell you something. Without Jesus, we're dusty in here. But Jesus knows what to do with dust, Sister Mary. Jesus knows how to take dust and make a man. Jesus knows how to take nothing but a rib and make a woman. And Jesus knows that in this generation, as he is preparing a people to stand, it is those like you and I who answer the call that are going to win the battle against this dragon. What does he want more than anything, beloved? The W word, what is it? Worship. Now, I told you that's a pin in a short place because we're going to come back to that topic later on. We're in our final seven minutes. So as I've said before, we're going to briskly jog. We're going to do what? We're not going to run because I don't want anybody to get left behind. We're going to briskly jog. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are we ready? All right. The great controversy centers in obedience. You can jot down this text, Romans chapter 6. Uh, verses 14 through 18. It will also be on the handouts that you'll receive from the brethren in the back. 
And in that particular text, the Apostle Paul uh, gives us a very important question. He says, what then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace shall abound? Is that why grace is shed, so that we can continue in sin? He says, God forbid. How can we that uh, profess to be dead to sin continue any more therein? If we are dead to sin, then by the grace of Christ we may walk free of sin. Wherefore, walk ye, beloved, in the liberty. The what? The liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free. Now that last part wasn't Romans chapter 6. You won't find that there. I'll give you that other text. But in Romans chapter 6, this is the point that the Apostle Paul is making. On our picture, we have an artistic depiction of the beginning of the great controversy, that war in heaven between God and Satan. Lucifer's war was against the divine government. I want us to see this from the Bible. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, speaking of Lucifer, the Bible says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. Now, now think about that, beloved. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 12 that there was war where? In heaven. Where was Lucifer when the war began? In heaven. Do you remember yesterday night? I showed you that when Christ returns, in Revelation chapter 16, I believe it was, that there is a group of people that are talking to mountains and rocks, saying, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And I told you, beloved, that if you stick with sin, sin will drive you out of your mind. Talking to rocks and mountains, Sister Ashley. The Bible says that this angel Lucifer was in heaven, but in his heart he said, I will ascend into heaven. How do you ascend into a place where God has already created you to be? It's the equivalent to me saying, after this sermon, I'm going to go to Battle Creek Tabernacle. Does that make sense? Where am I tonight? I hope so. The Bible says that in his heart, Lucifer said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Where did Lucifer want to sit, beloved? In the sides of the north. Does anybody, by show of hands, know what biblically is in the sides of the north? The Bible says in the book of Psalms, chapter 48, beginning at verse 1, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, beautiful for situation, beloved. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Where is the city of the great king located, beloved? On the sides of the north. Where did Lucifer say he wanted his throne to be, beloved? In the sides of the north. In other words, the Bible is putting the picture together for you and I. What Satan desired in heaven, we've already seen from the temptations, was worship. And Satan, now we're seeing, desired the throne of God, which is in the sides 
of the north. Is it making sense? Is it making sense? Now, I told you in the beginning of this message, it makes no sense for us to enter a warfare and not understand the enemy's strategy. We need to understand his strategy tonight. Turn to Psalms chapter 11, beloved. I want you to leave this place with more uh, skillfulness than when we walked in. Psalms chapter 11, the Bible is going to show us Satan's strategies to get that throne from God. Psalms chapter 11 and verse 7. Psalms chapter 11 and verse 7, the Bible says, For the righteous Lord. What type of Lord? The righteous Lord. So then question, is God righteous? Altogether, beloved. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. Let's go to Psalms chapter 11, verse 3, just a few verses up. It says, if the foundation, the what, beloved? If the foundation be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now follow the thought because I don't want you to lose it here. I can see that we're sleepy. We're going to catch it right here, amen? The Bible said in Psalms chapter 11 and verse 7 that God is righteous, amen? Now the Bible says in Psalms chapter 11 and verse 3 that if the foundation be destroyed, what can the righteous do? So if Satan is at war with our righteous God, Satan would have to attack the foundation. Are we seeing that? The foundation of his throne. If Satan desires the throne of a righteous God, then he has to attack the foundation. Is that not what the Bible says? That if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If you want to put God in a position where he's helpless, the only thing you can do is attack the foundation. How important is a foundation, beloved? Think about your house. If a man came to your house tonight and removed the foundation from underneath it, would you have much of a house to live in five years from now? Is a foundation important? Do you suppose that it is easier for a man to take one of your windows away than it is for him to take away your foundation? Satan is not interested in merely breaking our windows or taking away our door or taking away our carpet, beloved, Satan has gone to the very foundation of the matter. Where has he gone? The foundation. Proverbs chapter 16. What is the foundation of God's government? What is the foundation of his throne? Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 12. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 12. If Satan is at war and desires to sit in the throne of God, he has to attack the foundation. We're turning to Proverbs 16 and verse 12 to find out what that foundation is. Amen? The Bible says, It is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness. For the throne. The what, beloved? Is it a throne that Lucifer desires? Yes, it is. The Bible says that the throne is established or founded by righteousness. Satan has to attack this thing called righteousness. Now, we've talked about righteousness quite a few times in, this, in these meetings, haven't we? What is righteousness, beloved? 
beloved, if we're dreaming right now, what is righteousness? Righteousness, in uh, simple terms, is right doing. If sin is the doing of wrong and the transgression of God's law, then righteousness would simply be put as right doing. Amen? An upstanding citizen is a, is a, is a righteous person so long as God is working in them. But I showed you in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 and 31 that righteousness is not merely right doing. Righteousness is actually a person. Amen? Righteousness is Christ. The Bible says that Christ is our righteousness. And if the foundation of God's throne is righteousness, then in order to attack that foundation, who did Satan have to attack? Are we seeing the picture coming together, beloved? Psalms 119 and verse 34. This is going to be on one of our last texts. We're closing right here. Psalms 119. In fact, Psalms 119 and verse 172 first. Psalms 119 and verse 172. The book of Psalms chapter 119 is a very long book, beloved. There are 176 verses in there. We're in the 172nd. The Bible says, My tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. So at the foundation of God's throne, at the foundation of God's government is a law. His commandments are righteousness. Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law. I am not come to destroy, but to Fulfill. Do you know that the commandments of God were fulfilled by Jesus Christ? And when you receive the man Christ Jesus, that very law that you and I are powerless to fulfill is fulfilled, guess where? In us. Satan is at war with this law, beloved. The issue has always been obedience. Now, my question is this. Are we tired yet of losing the battle to Satan? Are we tired yet of calling ourselves Christians and the world turning from us because they think we're hypocrites? Beloved, by show of hands, how many of you have ever been a hypocrite in your life? Yes. Some of you are better than me. Your hands didn't go up. That's all right. I praise God for where you are in your development, and God is going to get me there too. Jesus can take those who the world today only views as hypocrites and make them his final team, living examples of just how good Jesus really is. Is it your desire to be a part of that team that he's preparing? My hand is raised with you, and I'm going to kneel in this place right here because I believe that we have learned this evening that God is fully able to accomplish this war. The fact that Jesus is my righteousness tells me that no matter what Satan does to attack righteousness, no matter what Satan does to attack obedience, if I would but cling to Jesus, then faith is my victory. What do you think?